right, Bizzlecast listeners, welcome to Bizzle's Daily Rebels, where I drop a commentary for an episode of Star Wars Rebels each day. If you want to hear more about how all of this works and where it came from, you should go to the first episode. Otherwise, I'm going to have you queue up the episode and count us into it. I always advise people to put subtitles on, maybe some ambient sound so you can hear a little bit of the music and uh, sound effects. I'm going to count us down three to one, and when I say go, you should hit play, and it will align perfectly with the episode. So thank you so much for listening. Get your media files, DVDs, Blu-rays queued up to the beginning, and I'm about to count us down. All right, here we go. Three, two, one, go. All right, Bizzlecast listeners, welcome to Star Wars Rebels Season 1, Breaking Ranks, the uh, fifth or sixth episode, depending on how you want to count it. This is not one of my favorite episodes, either of the season or the series, um, and exemplifies uh, a bunch of the weaknesses of the series. I don't think the series has many, uh, but this, uh, you know, displays uh, at least a handful of them. It also marks a bit of up and downness in season one that doesn't really pick up until the last two or three episodes. There's still a lot to like here, and there's some great world-building from within the Empire. Mostly just the idea of sort of mini teenage cadets, uh, while it does, uh, you know, jive with the Empire's modus operandi about, you know, getting people started young. The fact that they would all be, like, equally short and have these kind of too cute uh, helmets and outfits never really worked for me. At the same time, you know, Ezra already being entrusted to infiltrate. I guess it's important to show that they trust him and they wanted an Ezra-centric episode. Uh, But again, it doesn't seem like he would be ready at this point. You have to assume that there are some time jumps in these early episodes. I mean, how long has he have to be here to get to, like, the final stages of of the first level? Uh, At least, uh, of passing. Uh, I believe these two guys get murdered uh, later in the season by by uh, the Inquisitor. Not uh, meant to be buddies with all these guys. I also don't like the video game nature of the obstacle course. Uh, it doesn't seem like the Empire would really care about this. Unless they're training like death troopers or something. You know, it's the most Disney, uh, one of the more Disney of the episodes, because it's kids acting like kids. And so, if you're a little kid, you probably really like this episode. I mean, the two the two Imperial guys are, like, extra, you know, Disney cartoonish. The banter between the kids is sort of a step down from the somewhat adult dialogue that we've had so far. Uh, you know, this sort of Tomb Raider, Prince of Persia obstacle course is fun once, um, not on repeat viewings. And that'll be another theme about Star Wars Rebels, is that, like, with all great TV and movies, even, and especially if they're action and adventure properties, like Star Wars, most of the best episodes and moments have to do with character stuff, either funny or touching or dramatic or interesting or weird or scary, and the action is just supplementing it. So, for example... One of the more recent episodes in late Season 3 that really set up what's going to happen in Season 4, the Darksaber, where Sabine starts getting lightsaber training, and basically Jedi training, even though she can't use the Force, she 
is an extremely talented fighter with un- uncanny instincts and skills and is being trained to use a lightsaber to fight other, other Jedi and other saber users. But the best part of that episode is the interplay between her uh, and Kanan, um, who's being a little too hard on her, but also soft, uh, both in the wrong places, uh, and Ezra, who's actually being super supportive and not condescending to her at all, really trying to help her train, is excited to be sort of Kanan's assistant trainer. That's also Sabine's breakout performance in terms of letting her emotions go, finding out her backstory. And it's a two-parter. The one after that, she goes back to Mandalore and confronts her mother and her people. This is sort of the opposite of that. This is a lot of aesthetics. It's a world-building that we don't really need because all the sort of characteristics of the Empire are just being kind of caricatured and we already knew about them. It also belies the, uh, or puts, a, you know, it contradicts the ineptness, uh, seeming ineptness of most or all of the stormtroopers and pilots. You know that these guys would be so talented. Maybe that's the whole point: is they're, they're trained to be an elite unit, and that's why they're starting young, and their challenges are so tough. I really remember the details of you know of both the events um and the you know the kind of the the visuals and so forth of every episode this one i always kind of forget is somewhat unmemorable and i actually do end up liking it more because when i realize that you know we're not even five minutes in and we already have the rest of the team helping to infiltrate okay yeah it's been weeks so they do explain it they're always covering their asses uh and i mean that as a compliment in terms of, of exposition explanations, they do just enough so it's not overwhelming, but so that things are, are mostly make logical sense. I believe they're looking for kyber crystals in this. Another detail I, I always forget. And it leads to Ezra getting some contacts. Another thing I don't like about this episode that's very uncharacteristic of the series is he ends up, this guy right here, whose name is uh, Jai or Zare. I'm not sure which guy it is. Ends up becoming a contact of his. Oh, that's great. He goes right by Callus. Uh, Callus doesn't know. Callus is still learning the, the rascaliness of Ezra Bridger. I warn you, do not underestimate that child. So he establishes contacts within the Empire and only pays off once very briefly in a couple episodes when he's searching for his parents for the, you know, one of the many times he's searching for his parents on Empire Day, I believe. I think it's this season. Like in Star Trek, the seeming... Level of both high technology but lack of surveillance makes no sense. Star Trek it makes even less sense because Star Trek is really aiming to be a somewhat realistic and consistent, if uh, exaggerated, view of technology a few hundred years from now. Star Wars picks and chooses. That's what's endearing about it. It makes storytelling easier. You don't have to worry about it. But there's times when they have video, audio, or even video recordings. But here he's infiltrating, you know, a high level area. Oh, maybe that's the camera. This is somewhat mirrored uh, in season 
three, I think it is, where Sabine infiltrates um, the pilot academy to get Wedge, young Wedge, and well, not really that young Wedge Antilles and some other pilots out. In that case, she knows ahead of time that they are thinking of leaving or want to leave. Here, Ezra isn't quite sure. It's not really part of his mission to, you know, to liberate these other guys or bring them to the good guys. It is interesting that Ezra is the first one to basically be part of the rebellion but by doing this. Hera showing trust in Ezra by giving him one more day. One more day. One day more. Sorry. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Lamez isn't an influence on Filoni. So this is Zare. Right, Zare remains in the Academy to work from the inside and try and find his sister. Oh, right, he's breaking right into Callus' office. Ezra's the perfect person to recruit, because he was recruited so easily once he realized what the Ghost Crew was trying to accomplish. Ezra, too, is, you know, very quickly on board with, with Hera when, when she's trying to convince them all to join the Greater Rebellion. And because he's so talented, so smart, but also so charismatic, but, you know, truly morally upright without being condescending, he's the perfect person to, to turn. You know, Zeb turning Kalis to the good guy side is completely accidental. But is, again, similarly because of the, you know, unintentional earnestness and just authenticity of Zeb. Here we go. More uh, Mass Effect stuff. It's fine, I guess. It's well executed. So, you know, something I briefly brought up in an earlier episode when Kanan was saving Ezra from falling to his death from the sky while failing force training. Here we see Ezra can be ruthless to accomplish his goal. Most of these guys wouldn't make it anyways, but still, that's, that's still a hard lesson to learn uh, and a choice to take. But, you know, I mean, in cartoons, in order to make it cool, you have to make the jumps higher, the falls lower, make it harder for the good guys to die and easier for the bad guys to die or be taken out. And they really walk a fine line. And even critics of Rebels that I've listened to on the millions of Star Wars podcasts I've listened to, that's never really been a criticism. In fact, you know, I've heard people criticize, you know, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon being too overpowered in The Phantom Menace. But their, uh, you know, physical attributes or capabilities, I should say, pale in comparison, not only to Ezra and Kanan in Ahsoka, but even like Sabine and Zeb. I think people who are watching this understand that it's Disney, and it's a cartoon, and it's still for kids, and it's just more fun when everything is, is amped up and ramped up a little bit. You know, so, um, so you know, this, this kind of subgenre of, uh, you know, Mission Impossible breaking into stuff, it's very hard to pull off and make look interesting. 
uh, what made the ori- original Mission Impossible movie reboot so great, at least in my memory, was, you know, you have so many iconic scenes, especially the one where, you know, they lower Tom Cruise from the ceiling through the laser beams. Oh, here we see Ezra's force powers are increasing. So he's been in there a few weeks. It's possible that there was even another time jump before that. So if you think he's been training for a few months, it'd make total sense. Again, you know, the, 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 the closer Ezra's ass is to the fire, the more he performs on a force level. I believe the Inquisitor makes an appearance, a surpri- uh, surprising appearance later. Right, so you're training all these mini, tiny cadets. Yeah, you know, you have air duct systems that are plenty roomy. Oh, there's the Inquisitor. Plenty roomy for the cadets to crawl around. Um, You know, I think part of the reason the Empire is especially hard on both uh, traitors and perceived traitors is because of their stupidity and not noticing when it's happening, so that when they do catch a rebel or, or or just someone who's against their interests. It's almost like overcompensating in the same way Vader and even more so Kylo Ren, you know, with his temper tantrums is overcompensating for, for failure. The power of the dark side is that by tapping into negative feelings like anger, fear, and hate, you're actually more powerful from a physical standpoint. Um, you know, if you think about everyone from uh, Palpatine to Vader, even the Inquisitors, Kylo Ren, you know, they're, they're way more physically powerful. In fact, I think no one's really commented on this, and I've never really thought about it, but Ray, Ray taking out Kylo Ren and she could have killed him if she'd wanted to, is, I believe, the first time that a light side force user, especially an untrained one, goes up against a full-on Sith Lord uh, and takes him down. Now, Ahsoka may have partially taken Darth Vader down at the end of Season 2. We'll get there. She certainly uh, damages him, which no one else has done. Anakin Skywalker never really loses while he's Anakin, uh, and Obi-Wan only loses to Vader by giving up. It's an interesting thought experiment whether Obi-Wan could have beat, old Obi-Wan could have beaten Vader, who would have been still younger than him and with his, his, uh, replaced body parts. I think Obi-Wan was going to die in that battle no matter what, but by, you know, by focusing his chi, if you will, in the Force, having Luke watch it, you know, he says, if you strike me down, I'll be more powerful than you can possibly imagine, which is turning, you know, Vader's words against him, is that he's, you know, he's more powerful dead, you know, as Luke's force ghost advisor, his guardian angel, uh, which we see even more in this in Empire and Return of the Jedi than he is as an old man who probably couldn't have beaten Vader. He definitely couldn't beat Vader. The consensus is no one could beat Vader one-on-one. I guess, you know what? Luke does beat Vader in Return of the Jedi, obviously. He, he, he cuts his hand off, he could kill him, and he throws it away, and then Palpatine electroshocks him uh, almost to death. So yeah, Luke, Luke does take down Vader. But that doesn't really count as much as Rey and Kylo, because Luke is pretty well-trained and experienced by then. 
And because of Vader's attachment to Luke, part of him wants to lose the same way that, uh, although Vader's not fully aware of it, Luke is aware of the fact that he does not want to kill his father. It's only Vader's threat against Leia that really makes Luke briefly pull some dark side shit. And actually, it's Luke's dark side uh, touching the dark side that allows him to take down Vader and, and could have killed him. Ray wins purely by the light side. Even though she's fighting with ferocity, she's not fighting with hate. Although maybe she is, and maybe we'll find that out. I hope they explore that, you know? That part of the reason she doesn't kill Kylo, other than, you know, it's not her way and it's not the way of the light side, is because she realizes that she's fighting out of anger and hatred from Kylo, what Kylo did to so many people, but especially Han Solo. It's great for the pilot to be the leader. You never see that. You know, the pilot's always under the captain's or commander's command, whether it's Battlestar or Star Trek or Firefly. You know, Wash has absolutely zero agency from a command standpoint, uh, which he's constantly commenting on um, in Firefly, uh, even though his wife's number two to Captain Reynolds. Although, this whole thing is worth it, because Ezra gets to keep that, that helmet, which on him actually looks sweet, and which gets an amazing graffiti job by Sabine. Just like Rogue One comes up with a brilliant explanation for uh, why the Death Star had such a seemingly glaring weakness in A New Hope... And was actually put there intentionally by Jin Erso's dad, who who was building it, Galen Erso. Rebels gets to explain a lot of stuff, and one of them is the incompetence of the stormtroopers, which is implied, which is basically that the Empire just is all about sheer numbers and doesn't really care about giving them training, assuming that they're going to die anyways, and just throwing you know hordes out. But when we meet Rex, the former clone who turns to the good guys and, and ends up helping the Rebels crew. He talks about how much better the clone trooper armor was. Even though they were manufactured for war and treated as somewhat subhumans, the clones were extremely loyal and were armed to the teeth because they were supposed to win that war and then they had to beat the Jedi um, and not face any resistance. It's not really clear why you can get shot in the shoulder by a laser blast unarmored and, and, you know, just be partially injured but a stormtrooper gets hit once with the armor and goes down. Doesn't really matter. Everything is subsumed to storytelling in Star Wars, and that's why exposition, you know, exposition is the fuel of Star Trek and the enemy of Star Wars. And I think people who like both Star Trek and Star Wars, it's, you know... There's plenty of people who only like one or the other. That was a really cool green explosion. Um, oh, there goes the TIE Fighters. It, it just it, it's scratches different itches. This is science fantasy, or, or you know, science myth, uh, whereas Star Trek is straight-up hardcore, hard science fiction. They use a ton of walkers, both the ATSTs and the ADATs. Uh, in Rebels, and they look fantastic, and the way they have those sort of carriers that drop them two by two from the sky is awesome. 
they pull the chewy return of the jedi move a tide where they you know just jump in throw the guys out and take it over and one of the most dramatic moments is in the very first episode of season three where ezra has grown and is now being you know now leading missions kanan's blind and kind of neglecting him and he's being influenced by the dark side via the uh sith holocron and uh he force controls the guy who's operating a walker forces him to shoot all this you know his own troopers and then walk off a cliff and while they certainly kill plenty of stormtroopers it's sort of the almost the pleasure that Ezra seems to take in the whole thing that really scares everybody yeah he has to stay to find the sister and he helps Ezra a little bit down the road. I, I love it, the skinny guy and the fat guy. I mean, that's such, you know, such a, like, an Aladdin thing or whatever. And it's great because the stormtroopers can't shoot, and this guy's a cadet, so the fact that he's missing on purpose, they would never know that it was, you know, intentional. This must be scary, though, for this kid to be a traitor in the room with Callus and especially the Inquisitor. Ezra Bridger, the Padawan, yep. Very close, right? The Empire's always very close. So... By ending season four on their own terms, as opposed to being canceled, um, Rebels, that is, obviously. Uh, and I think th- with Thrawn g- going to be successful, at least taking down some of the Rebels' crew, temporarily interrupting the Rebellion, and I think Thrawn's going to survive if, if they keep what happens to him in the extended universe where he even survives the death of the emperor and vader and you know and regroups and you know the cool thing would be if theron ends up being the sort of progenitor of the uh first order between episode six and seven that he's cadet sir yes sir he loves kanan so much i love it and there you have it, an episode that isn't one of my favorites, but I always like more and more as it goes on. So I will see you for the next episode, which is entitled Out of Darkness, another so-so episode, because it's mostly just a lot of arguing between Hera and Sabine, but it's important that those two are established, both in terms of themselves and their relationship. May the force be with you. The Bizzle is out.